This episode has drug references. Discretion is advised. When I got in my crash, it wasn't the first time I'd driven drunk because I was in that you know bulletproof teenage mentality of I'm fine, I'm okay. Psychedelic trips. In 2017, you said that you met a god. It's unlike any other experience I've really had before or since. Out of body experiences. Some religions would say what you believe is demonic. What would you say? And life inside prison. YouTuber Vasuda Das tells all. You've tuned in to Why Believe, the world's most controversial podcast on religion and belief with TikToker and researcher Kale O'Donnell, the Aussie thinker. So Vasuda, what is your worldview? My worldview? Oh, it depends. I mean, there's so many different aspects of life. Uh, are you talking about more so in the religious sense? Yeah, I mean, you insinuate that perhaps you might be Hindu, but I'm not too sure if you're concrete Hindu or if you take some of their teachings. Yeah, I mean, if you had to define it, I am initiated and I practice in the lineage of Advaita Vedanta, which is Hinduism, essentially. It's like one of the core, it's basically the foundation of Hindu philosophy, uh, so if I had to define myself, I'd say, yes, I'm Hindu. I practice Hindu philosophy. I agree with uh, the writings and the teachings. They make the most sense to me, both psychologically and philosophically. Uh, so mm-hmm. I would say it, but I, I don't really know write on my profile or go up to people and say, hey, I'm a Hindu, you know, because Hinduism is more so, it's the only religion that's not just a religion. It's literally an entire way of life. It's an entire culture. It's an entire way of being. Um, and that's why, you know, people in India can be Indian, but not Hindu. You know, they can be Indian and Buddhist, but not Hindu. People think that they mistake Hindu as what this race is. But in reality, it's an entire expansion of what your entire nature is and what reality is. So in the view of Advaita, Advaita Vedanta, Advaita means not to. So Dvaita means to, the A in front of it, Advaita means not to, all is one. And Vedanta means, oh, go ahead. Oh, that's cool. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm, 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 it's clicking with me. At the yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Advaita means not to, it means all is one. And then Vedanta literally just means the lessons from the end portion of the Vedas known as the Upanishads. So mm-hmm. the essence of Advaita Vedanta is understanding our oneness through the teachings of the Upanishads and the Vedas and other books as well, such as, you know, the mm-hmm. Bhagavad Gita and so forth. Uh, and that's basically where it comes from. And, Believe it or not, a lot of modern philosophies and a lot of even Greek philosophers, uh, especially, their teachings originate from the discoveries they found when they traveled to India or when they discovered the teachings of the Vedas and the Upanishads and so forth. So it's pretty much just the most ancient teaching on understanding your non-dual nature, your oneness with all of existence. Wow, it's really, it's kind of complicated in one sense, but also very simple in the next. So I'm yeah. curious to know, how did you grow up? Um, how did you learn about spirituality? Well, uh, I essentially grew up in a, in a Christian household or Episcopalian, um, kind of the situation where, you know, you're forced to go to church every single week. Uh, there wasn't really an option. You know, if I didn't go, I'd be grounded or something. <laughs> so <laughs> I was always a little bit resistant to it, mainly because in the beginning, I kind of accepted it. But as I got a little older into my early teens, I was questioning it um, because I had so many questions and they wouldn't be answered. And people would reiterate, you know, just have faith or you got to just believe. And to me, that wasn't that wasn't enough. That didn't suffice as an answer. Uh, So 
for a few years after that, when I really fell out of, of love with the faith, I became uh, an atheist. I was very much in the scientific mode of thinking and absolutely focused on, you know, I'm just a carbon-based life form and nothing else. And in the kind of almost a nihilistic mode of atheism, um, a pessimistic one too. But that was my own fault because I was in there. I was in it with a bitter state of mind. But once I got out of that, I ended up going to jail and being incarcerated. And that kind of made me step back and refocus and rethink what I thought I knew about myself and what I thought I was. Uh, And that began with um, a a dive into first Buddhism and Taoism, kind of understanding the way, as it's called in Taoism, life being as it is, always flowing like an, an eternal river, so to speak. And I got deeper into Taoist philosophy and Buddhist philosophy, especially over the next few years when I got out and everything. And then that shifted eventually into searching for where, you know, the Buddhist teachings came from and where the origin of Buddhist philosophy came from. And it came from Hinduism because Buddha was the son of a a Hindu king. And so the deeper I went into Hindu philosophy, I found the rootings of Buddhism already in that. And so the end of that journey is Vedanta, right? That's the origin. That's as far back as history goes, as far as we know, on these philosophical subjects. So I'd say my whole life is kind of that journey back to the origin of this sort of information through, you know, the path of many different religions. Wow. So that's, all, that's really interesting that you started there um, with your family or your, 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 with your parents, the Episcopalian mm-hmm. church, yeah. um, did you feel like you ever belonged in Christianity or what was, did you ever feel Jesus was real or that God was real? What was that kind of? I think when I was really young, I identified with it just because I hadn't evolved mentally to a level of maturity where I could even question it. You know, it was just one of those things where you're like, yeah, I'm on this team. And I'm in this, you know, big church with all these people. This is great. But as you get older, you start having questions. And as soon as I started questioning it, that's when it really started to crack and fall apart because those questions, like I said, weren't being answered. Um, But in the beginning, yeah, I think it was just a state of before questioning. And that's the big thing for me is I've always been the kind of person, much to, you know, my my school teacher's dismay, is I'd always be the kid who'd be like, why? But why? But why is that? You know, and it would just upset people. But that was the same with me in religion. I was only really adamant about Christianity until I started questioning it. But I definitely do, uh, reflecting, think of Jesus as probably a teacher or an ancient, you know, prophet or uh, a guru, so to speak, in the ancient times. So it's it's a mixture, you know. Could he have been um, something more potentially? But I, I think more so, he was just this adamantly revolutionary figure in the Middle East who taught these beautiful teachings, and that was kind of blown up out of proportion into the messiah he is kind of seen as today i see that's a really interesting um that's a really interesting perspective Mm -hmm. now you just said before you were incarcerated for a a while Mm -hmm. um why were you incarcerated so i spent uh a year in jail roughly because of a dui accident that i caused when i was 18 it was actually well in america at least you can't drink until you're 21 Um, But when you're 18, the legal laws change from adolescent to adult. So anything you do wrong is obviously you get in way more trouble. So it was actually one week after I turned 18 that this happened and my friend was in the car and they got injured. And so the area I was living in was in a very conservative district of the state I was in. And so they wanted to make an example of me. 
And so instead of giving me what normal people would get, such as, you know, probation or maybe community service or something, uh, they just gave me a straight of year in jail. <laughs> so that was, you know, a radical shift in what I thought my life path was going to be. It was, it was totally out of left field. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, I think it's in your book that you said that you met people in jail that helped. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, I think it's interesting, you know, people have all these ideas of what jail and prison are like because of, you know, what they've seen on TV or movies. Uh, but a lot of it's not like that. Uh, it's at least not in the minimum or low security areas. Maybe it is when you're in maximum. I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, but I met a lot of people in there that, believe it or not, inspired me and really uh, helped me realize where I didn't want to be because they were where they didn't want to be and they were very much aware of it. Uh, a lot of people in jail have the self-awareness to know that being there is their fault. You know what I mean? It's almost like uh, people roll their eyes if you're in jail and you're not taking responsibility for being there. You know, people are like, yeah, sure. It's not your fault for being here because everyone's so aware of their own mistakes. But one of the, one of the big lessons that has always stuck with me was nearing the end of when I was leaving because uh, in every, we were in a big dorm with 70 or so people. And when you're in big dorms, there's always people called shot callers. And shot callers are kind of like the OGs or the originals, the older guys that run the block, so to speak. They're just kind of like the, like the president, you know what I mean? They just kind of keep everything together and set simple rules so things are just chill because everybody just wants to, you know, enjoy their time and get out. Nobody wants to wake up and fight and argue all day long. People just want to make the best of a bad situation. And so... Before leaving, uh, one thing that happens, especially from a year in jail, is you see people come back all the time. You know, people will get out and they'll come back. And it's a really disappointing feeling when you see someone who wants to turn their life around, but they get back into old habits. And then you see them come back while you're still there. You're like, come on, man, you could have you done better. It's unfortunate to see that. So they, they pulled me aside about a few days or so before I, I was leaving uh, and basically said, you know, you don't want to, we don't want you to end up like uh, us. You know, I was 19 or I was 20 when I was getting out. So they were basically saying, we don't want you to end up like us. You don't want to keep coming back here. Uh, you know, we love you, but if we see you in here again, while we're still here, we're going to beat the ever loving crap out of you essentially. And people might be like, Oh, it's really mean. Why would they say that? But that was their way of showing love, you know, is them saying, we want you to succeed and not fall into this life so much that if you come back, it means you don't respect us. It means you don't respect us or the fact that we believe in you right now. And so we'll make you feel that. And so it was kind of like, okay, I won't come back. <laughs> and I, you know, I never did, thankfully. But it was, it was an interesting experience to have that from these elder people, you know, going out of their way to sit me down and kind of tell me, look, we think you have a chance to change your life for the better. And if you don't do so, we'll show you physically how disappointed we are in that. So that was like a turning point for you. It, yeah. it, it made you change like the trajectory of the way that you were going to go. And you didn't go back um, no. to prison to see them again. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose I want to know more about that DUI and about your drug use, because you said yeah. that nine years ago, you've, you gave up drugs. Um, yeah. What drugs were you doing and what happened? Well, what initially happened was when I was 16 and 17, uh, I had two of my friends, two of my good friends, uh, killed less than a year apart. So imagine, you know, your best friends, people you see all the time at school and run around with outside of school. One was shot to death and one was stabbed and killed. And this is in a city where, you know, violent crimes like that do not happen. It's a very, you know, like I said, conservative area. 
a clean kind of town, so to speak, very middle class. So that thing was totally out of left field. Uh, and then it happened again. And so I ended up in a position, uh, long story short, where because of my inability to cope with it, I ended up with a relationship and then personally utilizing uh, Xanax or barbiturates. Uh, and anybody who's done them knows how addicting they are, right? They give you this kind of drowsy, okay feeling. Everything's warm and all right. And that pain is gone and that anxiety is gone. And I just started using it consistently, constantly. And of course, going to parties and so forth, I started using, you know, lots of marijuana, uh, drinking all the time. So I was just at that point in my life, after that year or so, I was just in this complete idiotic mentality of I'm invincible and I can do whatever drugs I want as often as I want and nothing's ever going to go wrong. You know, I would, it was when I got in my crash, it wasn't the first time I'd driven drunk because I was in that, you know, bulletproof teenage mentality of I'm fine. I'm okay. Uh, but I wasn't okay. I was hiding it all through that kind of drug use and through those compounds. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. So I know that the drug use had a, a, a lot of negative connotations to them and they caused a lot of harm in lives and, and you saw the impact mm-hmm. that it had on people's lives. I'm interested to know, I suppose, from this, from your perspective now, it being a tool for spirituality. What mm-hmm. you talk a lot about in your um, movies, uh, in your YouTube videos about um, psychedelics and the mm-hmm. way that they have on the brain, how do you view them now? Are they a tool to get into the spiritual world? Why would somebody, why should somebody take drugs or shouldn't take drugs? Yes. Yeah, so I, I had done mushrooms and LSD when I was younger, you know, in that phase. But to me at that time, that's what I saw them as, just kind of another a drug or something I could trip on to have an interesting experience, but there was no depth or intention to it or anything. There wasn't any emotional resonance to it. Uh, it changed things a little bit, and I made a video on LSD as well. It was a powerful trip, but it wasn't enough to really resonate with me. And once it was done with, it was like uh, that chapter was closed, and I continued with my toxic ways. Uh, so after you know all these years sober, when I started traveling last January. I told myself that I was going to open back up to those experiences. You know, if I uh, am in a certain place and people have these compounds, I'm going to work with them. But I didn't, I didn't actively seek them out. And actually, like we were talking about beforehand, I got to Australia and I was there in the springtime when all these mushrooms were just growing everywhere, bountifully, thousands of them. And I was on this kind of Hindu farm. It was an eco village, but they had a temple there uh, for Lord Krishna. And for me, it was like, okay, the first, one of the first places I go and really settle down for a bit to like live out in the woods. And of course, these woods are full of mushrooms. This must be kind of Krishna's uh, test for me to, you know, go ahead and heal these because before I used them in high school, I, the last time I had a really bad trip and I got into this kind of, you know, anti-psychedelic uh, state. Even when I was sober, I was kind of in this mentality of, you don't need them, don't worry about it, you know, no point to go try them. And so it's because I hadn't healed that kind of trauma with the mushrooms. And so when I was in Australia, I spent about a month doing them every other day, almost some days, small doses, some days, much larger doses. And I wouldn't really tell the people around me. I mean, a lot of people there were doing it, but it was more so just for my own healing, going about my regular day and doing so really helped me open back up and heal those traumas and realize how I can grow with these compounds and how they definitely can help people. But a big thing I always tell people, you know, when they ask me, uh, should I use psychedelics or shouldn't I, is that that's for you to decide. You know, I don't ever, I'm never going to be somebody who goes, you should do LSD or you should do magic mushrooms or you should do DMT. I think those kind of decisions are ones we have to make ourselves, right? Just like you wouldn't want somebody saying, you know, if you, 
randomly ask somebody on Instagram, should I move across the country? And they say, yes, doing that isn't really a well thought out thing. Maybe you'll regret it. Maybe you'll get halfway there and realize you didn't actually want to do it. It has to be an internal choice that you make. So the same thing with psychedelics. I tell people if you're interested in it and if you're committed to it, and if you really feel you can grow from it and you have an intention behind using it, by all means, go for it. But don't, don't, you know, just go on someone's profile and ask them, even if they're a teacher, whether or not you should do something, it's gotta be a decision you make for yourself. And in that regard, uh, especially from learning from them over time, I've really begun to internally see them. It's almost like drugs at this point need separate categories, right? Because we have very harmful ones that you can die from and overdose on. And then you have ones like MDMA and psilocybin and LSD, which have very low toxicities, which are used now in therapy for healing uh, PTSD and different diseases. So I think, you know, the, the Reagan era, at least the American Reagan era campaign of, you know, anti-drugs in all form has created that negative connotation that we're just now starting to break out of and realize that we can't, there, you can't logically see alcohol as equivalent to, you know, a mushroom. They have very different effects, very different purposes, and they do very different things to the body. One more so destructive and the other one more so, uh, I think, improvement wise. And that's why there's such powerful tools for spiritual growth is they, they open up our mind and our our thoughts to a space where we can finally start to ask questions maybe we had never even thought about asking uh, prior to using them. Wow. That's a really interesting perspective as well. And some great advice um, as well to people who are looking to do substances um, Mm -hmm. for spiritual reasons, for healing reasons, things like that, because you've been there and you've done that. Um, I suppose now I'm interested in 2017, you said that you met a God. What mm. God was it and what did it say to you? I think you're talking about Ram Dass, right? I think so. About, yeah, so that I, I made a video called I Met God um, about meeting, or not meeting in the physical, but talking with Baba Ram Dass. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Ram Dass is a spiritual teacher. Uh, many of his, te- he actually just passed away about a month and a half ago. Um, I think in his late 80s, early 90s. But he taught a mixture of, you know, Taoist, Buddhist, Hindu philosophy, all kind of thrown together and followed the path of Guru Kripa or the he was basically sharing the message of love everyone and see all as one, see everything as the divine uh, through his teacher named Neem Karoli Baba. And so for me, when I spoke to him, it was an interesting experience because when you're speaking to people you you instantly right away recognize their personality, right? I have a personality, you have a personality, everyone has a personality. Uh, but when I was speaking to Ram Dass, it was the first time, and the second time after that would be when I met my Swami, who I you knew is still my Swami to this day, my, my teacher. It was the first time when I had been interacting with a human being, but there was no little personality there. It was just like light, like purity, absolute purity, absolute love. It was as if I could feel that he wasn't judging me or that he wasn't trying to identify me or trying to figure out what I was. None of that mattered. He was just in this space of complete love, pure love. And when you feel that, it's, it's, it's a life-changing experience, you know what I mean? To, to be amongst and in front of speaking to a, a, a being who there's no ego there. There's no mentality. There's no personality. It's just purity, source. Uh, and in Hindu philosophy, that, that level of bliss it's called Ananda. 
uh, Ananda means bliss in uh, Sanskrit. So it essentially was my first realization or seeing of what that pure love is. And when we think of everything as one, the core of being is that bliss. That's what the Vedas like to speak about is the enlightened state, nirvana, all those experiences where you fall into oneness is a purely blissful experience. It's called Satchitananda. Your consciousness becomes that bliss. But the truth of consciousness is that bliss. So for me, when I met God, it was more so it was a moniker for he is, I could feel that infinite non-dual nature moving through his vessel in a way I'd never, I'd never felt before. You know, you can read about these things in books and study like I do. But when you experience the physicality, when you're physically experiencing that, that flow through a vessel, it's a, it's a life-changing experience. And that's really what God means in Hindu philosophy, right? When we're talking about God at the ultimate level in the non-dual faith, especially, uh, we're not thinking of it as like a big man with a white beard who has vendettas against homosexuals and stuff. That, that's not what it is. It means the absolute infinite ultimate. And the word for that is called Brahman. Brahman literally means beyond name and form, beyond mind and concept. All of everything infinitely, or as you know, we call it the cosmos, that's what God is uh, in, in the non-dual Hindu faith. And that was my first kind of, I guess, glance into just feeling that a little bit in my heart, feeling that infinite purity, that power just flowing through this, this human being. And it was, it was a really, really radical and, and really life-changing experience to have that happen. And I was, I was blessed, you know, get a, get a speak with him before he passed. Wow. Have you ever met Brahman again? Like have you experienced that kind of thing again, meeting people or? My Swami, my Swami has that same kind of energy and that's why I love being in his presence. You know, I go back to California uh, next week. Finally, I'll be traveling back for a retreat, but I'm like, I'm like a little kid. So excited. I get to go back to my temple and spend time with him because he has that same air, you know, he teaches and he, he holds space and he does lectures and everything and meets with you and has lunch and stuff. But all throughout that, it's like there's no judgment or worry in his mind. He's never second-guessing anything or judging anybody for anyone. It's just like he's in this space of absolute love the entire time. Um, and I think that's a rare thing to find. You know, it's something to, to look up to. And anytime I'm around him or with him, I'm like, I got to get my act together. You know, I got to go deeper into myself because I can tell he's in that space and I got to work towards it too. That's my path too. And I think that's I a path like for that. a lot of us. Yeah. And it gives you a good, it gives you a good purpose and it gives you a a feeling of identity as well. I'm just curious to know, do you think Christians and Muslims can also attain that kind of Brahmin aura about them? Do you think they possibly, if you met a Muslim and you didn't know they were Muslim, you, would you be able to feel that God Brahmin again or? I think, I, I think it's possible, but I think that one of the problems with dualistic religions and the way we see things like Abrahamic faith is that there's this kind of inherent separation between you and God, right? So that's one of the big differences between uh, Hinduism, which is really, at its core, a unique thing, right? It's monotheistic polytheism. All these different gods that are just faces and archetypal descriptions of the absolute infinite. And so you are one with them. You are one with all of that. You know, we're all our own face and our own archetype of existence. Whereas in in Abrahamic faith, there is an innate separation between you and God, right? Even when you die, you don't become God. You get to go to God's domain in in heaven, wherever that is. Uh, So there's always a separation. So I think people can reach that level of pure being, uh, of pure bhakti or love, 
it just might be a lot more difficult because they have to bypass the the meaning of separation completely. They have to completely not care about it, over over overrule it through their own love to that divine. I think it definitely is possible. Have I met uh, one yet? No, I haven't. Both have been in the more Buddhist Hindu faith. Uh, but I think that's just you know, probability. When you're following any practice that speaks of your infinite nature and your infinite blissful oneness with being, that's obviously going to be easier to come into that space versus being in a, in a faith that more so isolates you as just the human or just the form, even with the soul, not as much as that God, you know, so it can make it more difficult. But the way that Ramakrishna would explain it, one of the uh, teachers in my lineage in the 1800s, uh, he would say they're all, they're all paths to the same destination. You know, some paths might be easier, some paths might be more simple and clear cut, and other paths might be more difficult and more overgrown. But regardless, they're all just different paths aiming for the same destination. Right. Would you say that Hinduism is the faster, better path? I wouldn't say, you know, faster or better. It's, it's more so kind of like more, more effective. You know, any, any path that I feel personally, this is my, you know, my personal bias, obviously. Uh, any path that focuses foremost on your devotion and your focus and your work on realizing your infinite divine nature internally is always going to be, I think, easier to expand into and to realize and understand and practice in versus a faith that doesn't tell you you are that. Because then you'd have to self-discover it. You'd have to find it within yourself or self-realize it, which can be much more difficult. So that's why it's, it's kind of like effectivity. You know, you can, you can use a, you know, a little chisel to try to drill out the ground or something or make a hole, and then somebody else can come up with a jackhammer and do it in, in a few minutes, whereas maybe it'll take you days or weeks. I think it's about effectivity and uh, implementation of that. Wow. I'm just experiencing, I don't know about you guys, but when I speak to spiritual people, cause I'm an atheist and I'm, I wouldn't, I, and I've got more questions at the end about spirituality as well, but yeah. I don't classify or really see the spiritual worlds, but you, when you speak, it makes cogent sense. There's, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not drifting away. I'm not, you don't have all this fruit salad words, you know, these, yeah, no, you you make sense and it, it makes sense to me. And that's really interesting for me to be able to hear you, you know, speak from a place that actually makes sense. You you draw lots of conclusions. I suppose on that line of making sense and drawing conclusions, you said that you're very interested in science. I'm just curious mm, to know, is there some science around this for, this force? I keep going back to it. Brahman. Is there, is there scientific proof of Brahman? Well, what we have to understand Brahman is, is that, think of human consciousness. The biggest way we can understand it is that even if we can ask the question, the answer might be beyond our conception or the answer might be beyond our discovery right now, right? Hmm. Uh, A good way we can see it is, you know, we think of the world as a cosmos, right? Everything is the cosmos. Brahman is the same. Brahman is what we can see. So everything around you, the microphone in front of your face, you know, me talking to you, everything is Brahman. All of existence is always Brahman. It's that infinite. It's not somewhere else or hiding behind, you know, a building or something like that. It's always all happening all the time. Everything is the divine incarnate existence itself, uh, beingness as a whole. What Mm -hmm. Brahman is, is even that beyond it. So Brahman really translates to their understanding of God as everything you can see, touch, feel, understand, question, and so forth, everything you can sense 
And it's also that which might be beyond that lens of understanding, right? We only have so many senses, which means our our ability to introspectively ask questions and test hypotheses through the scientific method are also limited to those senses of understanding. So there are also questions outside of this that we simply in the human form can never ask, right? If an alien has different senses than us, the alien can do different scientific tests based on that and discover conclusions that maybe we could never discover. So it's literally a translation of the infinite everythingness. So to say, uh, is there scientific proof is to say, you know, everything around you is the proof. All of existence is the proof. The, the desk I have my laptop sitting on is the proof. The water I'm drinking is the proof. Your existence is the proof. It's all of everything. Right. And see, there's a difference between, because the Christians have that same argument. Well, they have the same thing, but it's different to the Hindu. Because what I sense is that the creation of the world or, or the world is a created thing. And it is... Um, made by a God you cannot see. Um, But the Hindu, what I'm getting from you, is that it's here and now and this is um, all that there is. This is um, Brahman in front of you. This is existence and things. So are you saying that you don't necessarily need faith in Hinduism? Yeah, well, that's the thing. It depends on how philosophically you understand the Hindu philosophy, right? Uh, people that don't, even though people living in India that have never really div- dove into the philosophy might not understand what I'm explaining now. Maybe they think of Shiva as literally Shiva, this big being with dreadlocks and a trident. Uh, but at the core, all those things are simply images, right? They're kind of like the screens that are the movies projected onto. And that's really the, the core of um, Hindu philosophy is that, is going to the depths and understanding it intellectually. And to do so is the most important thing we can do. And in Hindu philosophy, it's actually called being a gyan yogi. Gyan yogi means a yogi of intellect. So to understand something spiritually, you have to have absolute faith in that. Well, how do you have absolute faith in that if not by questioning it and attempting to understand it and attempting to disprove it and break it down? That's the beauty of it. And that's why scientifically it resonates with me so much because that's what the scientific method is about right? Trying to break something down and disprove things or understand things. And what's left must be what we understand as the truth, at least so far. At the core of Hindu philosophy, especially in the non-dual sense, this is also what they believe. What is, is whatever we can discover and understand intellectually through our own mind. And everything else might be, but let's focus on what is. It's kind of the, the real deal. And that's why, like you said, it's the infinite is Could it be other things and could there be a a, a divine creation? Possibly, but none of that really matters. What matters is being here and now. And that was actually uh, the title of Ram Dass's book. His first book when he came back from India, it was called Be Here Now. Because that's that's the whole journey. You know, it's not off there or over there or questioning or waiting to die and go to heaven. It's all about realizing your infinite divine nature in every single moment. And I see why that would have um, been a problem for you as a Christian, because there was always this element of a backpack you had to carry around of needing to have faith all the time Mm -hmm. that something behind the curtain is there. Um, But you as a Hindu now or or a person um, who resonates with the Hindu teachings, you need what is here now. Um, This is all that you need. Um, and it makes sense for you. And it sort of brings a sense of um, peace, like you say, that this is all you need because that, that I suppose it gives a person, it gives me, if I was thinking of outside of the square, Muslims and mm. Christians would be thinking or other religions that have a God that's not, you know, as yeah. um, 
as here and now, you constantly have this feeling is, is it there? Is it not there? Can it hear me now? Can it not hear me now? Um, Would you say, that's interesting, is Brahman listening now? I know maybe I'm not fully understanding Brahman, but is there something that, that hears prayers? Well, that's the thing is that that divine is all of beings. There's no there's no form, if you get what I'm saying. Right. So there's no thing out there to hear or listen or reciprocate anything. It's all you and all of existence at all times. It's kind of like this continuous cosmic dance. Uh, So you can utilize these mantras and these chants and these prayers to your preferred form of God, which is called an Ishtadeva in Hindu philosophy. So like, say it, it, it's, it comforts me more to pray to Mother Kali than it does Lord Krishna. Well, that's fine. Uh, people do that all the time. But it's also knowing that Mother Kali is, again, an image or a projection of that infinite. So it's basically seeing all these different gods as different forms of physical human teachers. You know what I mean? Uh, and that, hmm. that's kind of a way of seeing it. A good way of also understanding where that faith come, comes from in every moment being what matters. And I want to share this before. Um, and knowing the fullness and the perfection of every experience and every happening is that when people in a, in a dualistic faith lose somebody or they die, what do they do? They cry and they mourn and they're angry and they wish it wasn't so because at some level, maybe they don't believe they'll actually meet them in heaven or something like that. That's one of the common reasons that occurs is they feel they've really for the last time seen them. Uh, but in the Hindu faith, when people are burned at the gats and the bodies are burned and, and they're they're released so the physical form is deteriorated uh it's more so a celebration people are celebrating at the gas sure they might be sad but they're celebrating the transistory nature of life they're not wishing things were different or hoping they'll see them in heaven they're simply ex- happy that they're experiencing the flow of life and that this figure which was their father or mother or friend or so forth they got to be part of their own experience for this certain amount of time and now their time is done Right. And that's the total opposite from the the Western view, isn't it? Uh, Because it is grieving and this um, real sick feeling of, of you're not seeing them again, or you're not going to, um, you're not going to a heaven or you are going to a hell, that kind of thing. Um, And, but in Hinduism, um, it's, or Sanatana Dharma, it's this, um, you're it's like biochemical recycling in science or biology you're just being recycled again so would you say we're praying to ourselves yeah and that, that's one thing you can see it is if you're making a prayer a prayer the best place you can place that is within yourself right the, the i think at least that's what i agree with and that's one of the things is that we're chanting these mantras and we're, we're if we want to pray we can but the biggest thing we have to realize is that if we want that prayer to happen or for those things to change, the best thing we can do is direct that internally into ourselves and into our own abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I want, if I, you know, if I'm praying for a, a raise at my job and I'm expecting some otherworldly force to do that for me, a lot less, that's a lot less realistic than if I actually just instead choose to go into work and work my hardest and do the best I can to physically make that raise happen. So a lot of the prayer is, you know, directed at yourself or directed at your own infinite nature. But even in, you know, in, in the non-dual faith, really, a prayer isn't, isn't really a thing because what would you be praying to if not simply having a conversation with yourself? So it's not a very common thing to pray, uh, at least down at our temple. I suppose that makes sense. I mean, it's just as if you're talking to yourself um, yeah. and just giving yourself confidence. You know, I can put that resume in and I can apply and things like that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm... Yeah. Go ahead. What were you going to say? 
I was I was just agreeing. Yeah, there's there's no kind of you know sitting and asking God for forgiveness or you know asking for all this. No, none of yeah. that really exists in the temple. Uh, Do you think the, people uh, need to be forgiven? I think you know the thing with By forgiveness is that no, I don't think so. Life happens as it happens. Things occur as they occur. I think forgiveness is a very human on human experience. Uh, a common quote is that I forgive you not because you deserve it, but because I deserve to be released from the pain I feel, right? And forgiveness is a very internal practice. If, if, some, if you wrong me, uh, if I'm forgiving you, it means I am letting myself go back into a space where what happened no longer drags me down or harms me. And that's why I think forgiveness is a really powerful thing when people choose to do it, because they're choosing to let that go so that they can continue to improve and enjoy their lives. So would you say that when people, because one of the common religions is is Christianity and mm-hmm. that um, there's a figure, Jesus Christ, who yeah. um, you need to be forgiven from, you were mentioning that forgiveness is something that's internal. It's something that you've got to do. Yeah. Do you think people use Jesus as a, um, they, they project onto them, that if Jesus has forgiven me, but really they're forgiving themselves. It's just like, yeah, a- yeah. It's, it's kind of like, uh, adding, adding another conduit to make the solution the same, you know, adding Jesus mm-hmm. to, the, uh, and that step kind of makes a lot of people feel better, right? It's validation. It's kind of mm-hmm. this good feeling of it's a, imagine if you made a mistake and you forgave yourself, but then also your mom came in and was like, I forgive you too. It would just feel really good to have another person, you know, validating the <laughs> fact that you're forgiving. So that's what a lot of people do. It's kind of, it's kind of called the father figure theories. That's why so many people believe in, in physical beings in the sky because it feels comforting to imagine there's some big being watching over you and protecting you. Mm. Um, that, that just, for most people, feels better than thinking they're just going about it as their own incarnation. There's nobody up there watching over them at all. And why do we do that as humans, do you think? Why do we look up thinking something's there? Curiosity. I think it's just curiosity. That's what that, that's one of the my favorite parts about humanity is our ingenuity and curiosity. We're just always wondering. I think a problem in that is what we see with some religions is that when we discover potential answers, some people like to stop and say, "All right, this must be it," and they don't keep seeking. They don't keep looking and keep refining what the answer might be. And that's an important mm-hmm. thing if we really want to grow and continue evolving is to continue questioning. The biggest problem happens when we, you know, ask a question, get an answer and go, that's it. Nothing else can possibly be right. My answer is the all mat, the almighty, the all knowing, and that that's what I'm going to stick with. And that's when we can kind of cut ourselves off from the rest of our life and the rest mm. of people as well. Wow. So now, Vashuda, I want to take another line now. Why is astral projection so fun? Oh my gosh. I, you know, I, I've, I'm actually writing a book on lucid dreaming right now, so it should be out soon. Um, and I've been practicing again for the first time in, in years. Uh, but I think it, it's fun and it's beautiful because it's literally like accessing a new reality, a different dimension, the astral dimension, the lucid dimension. And it's, it's a beautiful thing because until we experience it, it honestly sounds ridiculous. It doesn't sound real. It doesn't sound possible. It sounds like fantasy nonsense. But then once you do have that experience, it totally blows the lid off of what you view as real, what can be real. And that was a big transition in my life when I was younger is when I had my first lucid dream. It was the first time, because usually I have a more philosophical 
but scientifically grounded mind. And if I, like you said, if I can't prove things or understand it scientifically, I have a hard time accepting it. And that was the first experience where I realized coming back from it that science can't explain this, that, that I, I can't take any, anybody where I just was to test it, but I did experience it. And so it was a very overwhelming and beautiful experience. And I think that's what a lot of people have when they have their first astral projection, at least a dream, is they realize, holy shit, I just entered a new reality. How is this possible? And it opens up your mind far more than many things can. So in that new reality, um, what's there? Is there trees and um, food and things like that? Or it's, I kind of, have you seen the movie Jumper? No. What, what's the link to that? Uh, so I kind of, it reminded, at least my experiences, because everyone's experience is different in the realms. The realms are kind of created based on either what you want or what you're subconsciously thinking, kind of how dreams are too. Yeah, you're kind of entering into these spaces and you don't really know what to expect. Uh, it can be different every single time. But yeah, they do have landscapes and all these crazy things and entities and stuff. But I always compare it to uh, Jumper because Jumper is this movie from about 10 years ago. And this guy essentially has the ability, whenever he looks at a picture of something or has an image of a place in his mind, he can instantly teleport there. And so if he looks at a picture of, say, uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, he can go there right away. And then he's in Italy looking at the tower. Or if he sees the Himalayas, he can, in a picture, he can go there. Or if he visualizes uh, San Francisco, he can go there instantly. And so I think of the lucid realm and the astral realm too, once you get better at it, is you can kind of build this frame before you even lay down a dream of what you want that landscape to be. And when you end up going lucid or having a projection, you enter those spaces often, more often than not. So it's kind of like you're creating that space for yourself. But the first times, it's honestly just like a mystery box. You have no idea what to, what to expect or what you're going to see at all. So is this imagination or is there really something that is controlling it or we can create worlds for ourselves? That, that's the thing is I don't, I don't have the answers to that. And for me, it's not even about answering it. Uh, for me, it's more interesting just to experience it. Could it, could it possibly be a different, a wholly different dimension of consciousness than the human experience right now? Possibly. Could it also just be a, a kind of different mode of neural circuitry that happens versus dreaming and yet it's not anything majorly different? That's possible too. Uh, but I honestly don't know. The, the thing with me is that either way, the experience itself is, is bar none one of the most interesting things you can experience without the use of drugs or any kind of inebriant to change your reality, right? Humans for tens of thousands of years have been utilizing psychedelics and different compounds to alter their state of reality. We always feel like we rely on an external object to help us alter our state. So when you actually alter it for yourself, by yourself, without any external factors, it's a really, really revolutionary and, and new experience. It's unlike any other experience I've really had before or since. Mm. So do you like this reality that we're in now? Yeah, I love it. I love life. Life is a beautiful thing. Uh, mm. For me, you know, your perspective dictates your life. And I, I try as much as I can to see the beauty of life and to do my best to, to help improve this reality. Mm. Uh, but I, I absolutely love, love life. But it's because because, you know, it doesn't just come from nowhere. It's not like I woke up one day and was like, I love life. Uh, it, it takes inner work to get to that space where you can open up into holding love for yourself and for others. Mm. When I was growing up, you know, I had times when I was very suicidal and very anti-people and I hated life and I hated this, this world and everything. And lots of people are still locked in this mode of thinking. But 
through self-work, through self-growth, through research, through meditation, through, you know, betterment physically, eating better, taking care of yourself better, uh, discovering new understandings of what reality might be. All those things, I think, slowly make you realize how beautiful and unique this, this human experience is. I think uh, a mathematician did the math once of the odds of existence as a human in the, exist- in the cosmos. And it's one in, I think, like 34 trillion, just an unimaginable number of how rare it is to be anything at all. And yet here we are. We, we beat those odds. And so for me, it's always about appreciating that and making the most of that every single day. Mm. I'm curious to know if you think there's something that is, do you think there's something that's proud of you outside of yourself? Is there something that is proud of you for, for getting this cosmos this brahman getting the picture is there something ever going to be proud of you for doing this externally uh no i don't believe in any kind of external force out there you know watching me saying you know good job uh Mm. i think all of being at all times is as proud of itself as it can be if it's aware of it and if not we're as you know uh, self-conscious of ourselves as we can be um but it it all depends on like i said where you are in every single moment that's that's Mm. the core uh, if I'm proud of myself in this moment, quite literally the entire cosmos is proud of me in this moment because I am the manifestation of consciousness in this cosmos in my form. Uh, but in the sense of, you know, an external being or something out there, I don't, I don't believe in that. Mm. How do you keep yourself or how does somebody in this, who lives this kind of spiritual walk keep themselves from drifting into too, being, becoming too narcissistic where the, the world revolves around mm. them? It's, it's, it's definitely about lots of balance, balancing for yourself and also having people around you that will call you on your BS is mm. the best thing you can have. Really good friends, honest people around you who will let you know when you're getting, you know, when you're losing your way, uh, so to speak, mm. because it definitely happens. You know, it's happened to me before. I've had phases where I got way too into my mind, uh, even on my path. You know, we're, we're humans. We're infallible. We change. We make mistakes. Uh, but thankfully, I've had people around me that have been able to point that out for me and make me force or make me see things that maybe I was ignoring and maybe that I was denying about myself. And, that, you know, that's one of the most beautiful things about finding your community and finding healthy friendships and healthy mm-hmm. relationships is if we're on our own, it can be a lot more difficult. Mm-hmm. But if we have people around us that are open to being honest and open to talking to us freely, it's a lot easier. And I think that can be a problem when uh, certain teachers get too big for their students. And so they, you know, they become distanced from them and detached from them. I tell people often that I don't, I don't listen to any teachers who sit on thrones, right. That sit up on big golden chairs or anything, 10 feet above the stage. I don't like that. My Swami sits at floor level with all of us in a chair, four feet apart. It's very grounded. It's very honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you can, when you can work honestly with teachers and with friends and stuff, it's a lot easier to stay in, in a healthy way of living and in a beautiful, bountiful way of living and growing uh, than it is if we get caught up in dissociation or viewing ourselves as above or below anyone. Mm. Now, some religions would say what you believe is demonic. What would you say? I actually just did a video about this on whether or not spirituality is demonic. But in my view, the idea, like we said, uh, if we're looking at things empirically, there's no empirical proof that anything resembling a demon exists, right? There's no scientific proof at all. So that means there's only one other place the demons can exist if we're going to comprehend them through our senses empirically and physically is in our mind. So whatever you deem demonic and harmful will be. 
if you think of it that way, sure, you can see it as demonic and you can feel it's demonic and you can draw those uh, conclusions illogically. But at its core, no, it's not. Nothing inherently is demonic or angelic. The things are just things. And we decide what emotional response to give them, right? We decide what they mean to us. Uh, somebody who maybe has no idea who Ram Das is could have had the same conversation with him and been like, yeah, that, that's a nice old man. And it wouldn't have really been a big deal, you know, but since I've created this reality for myself in my own practice, it was a, a really humbling, life-changing experience. And the same goes for people deeming things demonic is that if they view something to be demonic, then by all means, they're going to do it in a way that will make their life worse, whether they know it or not. It's just how we draw conclusions. And that's one of the, the problems with humans. We have a lot of, uh, we're very, very bad at acting logically unless we're aware of logic. And that's why there's so many uh, lo- fallacies. I'm sure you've heard of logical fallacies. There's mm. dozens of them because we're not, we're not perfect robots. We're humans. And so we go with our emotions. And a lot of the times our emotions aren't grounded in, in rational thinking. So um, I, well, that's really interesting because I suppose some Christians would say that this water is holy and then they would say that this um, album CD or even the texts themselves, like the mm-hmm. Buddhist texts, um, they think there's demons in them. What would you say to people who are very afraid of Hinduism and very afraid of Buddhism because they're afraid that they're going to tap into the, the to, mm. to evil? What would you say to them? The biggest thing I could say is to try to work back where that, those, those ideas came from, right? Did you come to those under, did you come to that knowingness, right? So say, say uh, a better way, I guess I could word it is that say somebody thinks that a, a Buddhist text is demonic, right? The best thing you can ask them is, did you decide that through discernment, through questioning it, through your own practice psychologically, or do you only believe that because you were brought up in a faith that taught you to believe that? And about, I'd say 99.9% of people would say the latter if they had to step back and think about it, right? It wasn't something they decided. It's something that they believed in because they were told to and they were taught to. And so I always tell people, the first thing you have to do is deprogram yourself. Mm. That's, the, that's, the, that's the irony of spirituality is that we're taught all these things about what we are and what life is. And the moment spiritual practice starts is when we start throwing that all away and, and discarding that and, re- and, and opening ourselves back up to everything to discover what really is and what really matters to us. Uh, that that's the you know one of the hardest parts is the beginning is is realizing everything I was told might be wrong and I have to figure out what I actually feel and decide and understand for myself mm-hmm. rather than what I was told to feel and believe and think. Wow! So people who are watching this today and they're probably like me, they might be um, a dry atheist or something. Yeah. What would you tell them or what advice would you give them if they're interested in tapping into the spiritual? Can they? Can anybody be spiritual? Yeah, and that's the beauty. Spiritual practice can work just as well for an atheist as it does for, you know, a devout Hindu or Buddhist. You don't have to have some belief in, in a God to be spiritual. It, 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 there's no, no way that you have to do that or, or no rules, so to speak. And one of the other beauties of spiritual practice is that it's your practice, right? It's, you don't have to follow a specific religion or philosophy. If you find one that makes sense, by all means, go for it. Uh, but if not, literally spiritual practice can be you sitting in your own space, meditating, 
Were you working a, a way of being more mindful of life as you move through your day instead of just getting caught in your own mind, maybe trying to hold space for yourself and think of new things and open up to that? It's really accessible to anyone. And that's the beauty of spiritual practices. Anybody can practice, no matter what they believe in or agree with or disagree with. Spirituality is, is for all people and all beings. Would you say that I'm more spiritual because I'm a vegan? Uh, it depends. It depends. There's a big thing, though, because when we talk about veganism in that sense, you are inherently more spiritual for yourself, right? Because you are realizing the importance of life and deciding to not cause suffering. That's a beautiful thing. It's you thinking outside of yourself. That's part of spiritual practice is opening up to the importance of things outside myself. So I definitely think it, it is a very spiritual thing uh, to be vegan at all. Uh, but it can also, you know, be something totally non-spiritual, right? Somebody could easily just go vegan just because they want to, you know, look better and feel better and, mm. and be on a plant-based diet. It can be a totally egoic thing. It all, it all stems from our, the reasoning behind why we do things, why we do anything at all. Uh, but I, I am always, you know, I do have a little bit of a bias because I've been vegan for four years. Uh, when I see, you know, spiritual teachers who teach the, uh, the importance of seeing things beyond yourself and the wholeness of life and humanity and beings. And then they go eat a baby cow. You know, it's, it doesn't really con connect with me. And that's one of the beauties of, of Hinduism is many Hindus are vegetarian. They don't eat any meat because they recognize the importance of life, especially cows and pigs and so forth, which I think is a really, really cool and unique cultural thing to uh, India and Hindu philosophy. But I definitely think it's, it's a natural part of spiritual evolution at a certain level is to realize that you can transcend the need to cause harm to other animals to survive. Wow. And that's interesting. That's something we have in common. I was, I've been a vegan for four years as well. And um, I suppose the difference between us is that maybe I didn't have um, the right why. Uh, mm -hmm. I had the ego why. And yeah. I was doing it for health and I heard about all the health benefits and stuff. How can I change my why? As my last question, how can I change my why before we start our Q&A? Well, the big thing is you, you can totally continue doing it for your health and for your looks and for physical improvement. That's totally fine. But it's also at the same time, just kind of honoring the fact that, you know, there are animals who are, who suffer when we choose not to do it. So you can just kind of, it's just a light thing, you know, reminding yourself that by doing this, I'm, I'm helping the animals and it kind of makes you feel a little better, right? You know, you're helping. So it's kind of this good feeling. And that, that's one of the purest emotions we can have is pleasure through compassion. It's called kama in Hindu philosophy, pleasure through compassion. So the best way to experience pleasure is in a way that helps others, right? Mm -hmm. It's not good. To, it's not, it's, it's toxic, I would say, uh, to our mind and our life to experience pleasure in a way that hurts people. So something like rape is a very toxic way of a rapist feeling pleasure. Whereas... People making love in a connection with uh, consent and everything is a very much compassionate, pleasurable way of doing the same physical act almost. Really, again, stems from our understanding of why we're doing what we're doing and just having the right uh, reasons for doing so. Wow. Well, it's been such a fast episode today, Vashuda, but yeah. I've enjoyed yeah. every bit of it. Um, I've really loved listening today and just basking in, like you say, um, there is some kind of energy that you mm -hmm. um, have as well. Um, now, people who have been watching this know that I don't believe in energies, but perhaps maybe my mind's opening up to see the whys that you have um, and the whys that we can all start considering. Thanks, guys, for tuning into the podcast today. And, um, yeah, thanks everyone for being here. Thank you for tuning in today. 
Keep up to date with the podcast on Instagram at Why Believe Podcast and follow me at Aussie Thinker.